I did an album with my son, Tal, the first father-son album. We'll be called Bachman and Bachman. What was amazing is I had two people from Toronto fly out here saying, we think you can have another entity if you do this thing with your son. Nobody's done a father-son thing. You write those songs, you write them alone or you write them together. You perform and sing them together. You share solos. You do the whole thing together. Okay, we'll give it a go. And your album cannot sound like old Guess Who, old BTO, or Tal Bachman's big hit, She's So High. Get a new sound. So these two guys are here from Toronto saying, okay, here's your new sound. Okay, play it. They play me a song. It's called Dun Robin's Gone. It's me. It's from my first Brave Belt album with me and Chad Allen. I'm going, are you guys joking? They're going, you should sound like this. It's like Gordon Lightfoot with three-part harmony and acoustic guitar. And he said, do you realize that's me? I produced it. I wrote half of it. I'm singing it with Chad. I'm playing the guitar. I'm playing the bass. I'm playing everything. Oh, really? That's what you should sound like. I said, piece of cake. I'm Peter McCulley. Randy Bachman seems to be everywhere these days. He's on the radio, on TV, in concert, on social media. He stopped just long enough to chat with us. Randy Bachman, when Today in BC continues. The West Coast Traveler is an adventure in itself with content created by professional journalists and amazing photos provided by our readers. WestCoastTraveler.com is the newest travel network exploring all corners of Western Canada and the U.S. You'll see stunning photos and videos, read engaging travel features from around Western Canada and the U.S. Experience all the West Coast has to offer. Begin planning your next adventure. Visit WestCoastTraveler.com. Thanks for joining us today, Randy. You're welcome. You're well known as a guitar player, creating some of the best known chords in rock music. So you'll probably understand why I was surprised to find out that you started out as a musician playing the violin. Well, I was given a choice. I picked piano, too loud, too expensive, too noisy. I picked drums, too loud, too expensive, too noisy. How about a violin? Okay. (laughs) And when you're five, what are you going to do? How long did you pursue the violin for? Till I was 14. Then I saw Elvis on TV, boom, that changed everything. Because I was Royal Conservatory classical violin. And when I saw Elvis on TV, I said, what is that? The same thing if you're watching Elvis, the movie right now, they show the little 12-inch black and white TV that I saw. When I saw that, I just, I flashed right back saying, what is that? Oh, it's called rock and roll. What? Rock and roll. What does that mean? It's the music. Who's that guy? Elvis Presley. What? What is that name? Elvin? No, Elvis. What? We had never heard the name before. And then it was like Hound Dog and Tutti Frutti. And wow, this is insane. I want to do this. So you flipped from the conservatory violin player to rock and roll, just like that. Pretty much, yes. But one great thing about violin, it's a melody instrument. So when I switched, I was suddenly lead guitar because I played melody. I had it in my head. And I realized I couldn't read the music with Royal Conservatory. My teacher had played it first. And I would hear it, and I would play it perfectly. So when I hear rock and roll music and the solo, I know exactly where to go and do it. I had an opportunity to chat with uh, your good friend Valdi on this podcast not that long ago, and I'm going to ask you the same question I asked him. Was there something in the water in Winnipeg in the 1960s? Randy Bachman, Chad Allen, Burton Cummings, Neil Young, Valdi, Diane Hetherington, and others in Winnipeg. Fred Turner, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Yeah, the spaceship landed somewhere in the 50s, and something went in the white shell. That's documented in the white shell. Google it. Google white shell UFO outside of Winnipeg. And from that point, nothing was ever the same. 
At the start of 2022, you announced you were taking six months off to rest up, take care of some health issues, and then it seems like when you returned, you were everywhere. To be as active as I've been my whole life, to not be able to get on an airplane and go anywhere for two and a half years, it was like being in jail. Basically, we were all in jail. We were like solitary confinement, luckily in your own bedroom or your own kitchen or wherever you are, but it was just very inhibiting, and we could get out and get free. Boom, let's go. But while we were shut down, we did so many projects. My Lost Guitar, my Gretsch Guitar project is being filmed and edited right now called Lost and Found the Magic Guitar, found after 45 years of being stolen and lost in the world. And Tal and I cut an album as Bachman, the first father-son album. That'll also be the soundtrack to the, the rockumentary when it comes out. I got my Gretsch Guitar back. It was amazing to get it back. That's when I had bought in Winnipeg. I had Winnipeg Piano and learned to play on and wrote all my hits on from these eyes to American woman to taking care of business. Everything was played and written on that guitar and it was stolen. So to get it back was the most amazing thing. And then the way we got it back was amazing that we got a call from the Canadian consulate in Japan saying your guitar is in Japan. Will you fly here and we'll do the switch on Canada day? Wow. Okay. <laughs> Canada day at the Canadian consulate. Yeah. And then Takeshi who had my guitar says to me, I'll give you this one back. And I said, great, I'll give you a brand new one. He said, I don't want a brand new one. I want the same guitar. 1957, Gretsch with black DRM pickups, no mods, no repairs, nothing. I want a puppy from the same litter. Okay, that kind of thing. <laughs> I went out and found one at Gary's Rare Guitars in Loveland, Ohio. He sent me pictures. His guys played me a guitar players who are working for him, as do most music stores and vintage guitar stores. They picked out the one that played the best, had no mods. When he sent me the serial number, it was two digits off of mine. So it was made on the same bench in the same week, the same litter. And I had the twin sister of my guitar. When I, And then I zoomed to Keisha and said, I've got the guitar. And then Ian Mackay, a Canadian consulate there, come to Tokyo. We went to Tokyo last June. We did the switch on Canada Day, which was very appropriate. And it was really fantastic. Can you tell me that moment of what you were feeling like when that landed in your hands finally? I don't know. Here's what happened. When I got there, we went two weeks early because it's 17 hours time difference, right? And you've got to get used to everything. Everything in Japan is perfect. Everything runs on time. Everything is like Swiss movement. When I got there, I said, I wanted to meet Takeshi and see my guitar. And they said, no way. So what do you mean? You're not going to see your guitar till the day you switch. Like the groom sing the bride at the wedding, right? You don't see her until your dad brings her down the aisle. So they waited until Takeshi was on stage, Canada Day. The place was full of the Oscar Peterson Theater, which they had designed for Oscar Peterson, a beautiful theater. And he was up on stage playing, taking care of business, singing phonetically because he cannot speak English. <laughs> and I walked out on stage. You can Google this, by the way, if you YouTube it, it'll show the switch. I handed the guitar. He has me mine. I give him a brotherly hug. I stand back. I put it on. And I finished playing, taking care of business. And to actually hold that guitar... Because guitar is the most intimate instrument there is. You basically are putting your arms around it. You're holding it next to your bosom. It's like you're hugging your girlfriend, right? They breathe with you. They feel your heartbeat. You feel their heartbeat. And you become one at that moment when you're embracing. When you're playing a guitar like this, I'm embracing it three, four, five hours a day. And when I'm holding it, the feeling was unbelievable. And I can't wait. They still won't let me see it. I can't wait to see the documentary when it's finished and see... I think I had tears. I think I would have fallen to my knees. I was shaking. Can you imagine the anticipation? Like if somebody said, 
when you were in Port Alberni in 1973. Do you remember a woman named Judy? You go, yeah. Judy has had a daughter <laughs> and she's your daughter that you share and she's here and you got to go meet this girl or a son, right? This is, I'm getting this guitar back after 45, 46 years. It was a very amazing feeling. I was told by a good friend of mine who was once known as Canada's Chet Atkins that the Gretsch guitar is basically the holy grail. As an instrument, what makes it so? I've told a lot of people this. When you are a carpenter, you need a hammer, a saw, pliers, a wrench. You need a toolbox. The guitar toolbox, and back when I started, there was no foot pedals. You had a guitar and an amp, period. So you got a Fender guitar. Your choice was a Telecaster or a Stratocaster. You got a Gibson. Your choice was a big body, which wasn't that good, unless you're playing jazz, because it would feed back in house. So you got a solid body and a Gretsch, which got you a beautiful tone and played country music and rockabilly. When you look at who played Gretsch guitars, it was Chad Atkins at first, then Dwayne Eddy, then Eddie Cochran, then Chuck Berry, and then Brian Setzer, then myself. A lot of people played them. You need one in your toolbox. And it's really a special guitar. There's something about it. We brought it home and plugged it into an amp. And the minute we plugged it in, I started taking care of business. Everybody went, we haven't heard that sound since 1974. There's something about that guitar, the resonance in it. And played the way I play it, I guess. It's just, it just screams, let's party. This, and you know this song, get up and let's dance, okay? That kind of thing. I ran across this quote from you. When I was in the Guess Who, we found out about this English band called The Who. And we were determined to force them to change their name. There's got to be a good story there, Randy. We had a record called His Girl with Burton Cummings singing that we released and it was picked up in the States. And it made, I don't know, number 200 on the Billboard charts. Somebody liked it in London and asked for the three track. We recorded it in three track that they were going to sweeten the track. And by that, they mean put on like a flugelhorn or strings, which the Beatles were doing at the time, or the Moody Blues, or a lot of guys were adding to their three or four-piece guitar, bass, and drums. So we said, go ahead, sure, sweeten the song. They sweetened the song. It became top 20 in England. We're in school in Winnipeg. We look at the Billboard magazine, the hits of the world. That would be Toronto, USA, Canada, Belgium, Germany, England, his girl moving up the charts. And we got a call to go to England because the record label there was King Records and to sign with them. And we were going to be the new Beatles. Okay, I'm in. Okay, game on. Okay, <laughs> we get on a plane. No contract, by the way. We're naive. We're guys from Winnipeg, right? Somebody dangles a carrot. How high do we have to jump? So we fly to England. We get there. We go into the main office of King Records. And the guy's name was Philip Solomon. And he was a shady character. And when we were going in... There's another guy waiting there to see him. But our appointment was earlier. So we went in. We met with him. He said, your record's great. I want to send you a tour to Australia, New Zealand. You get 400 pounds a week. And I'm the leader of the band. I say, wow, 400 pounds a week each? And he says, no, 400 pounds a week. I go, oh, how about record royalties if we sell like the Beatles? What don't you understand about 400 pounds a week? You are here. Take her to leave it. We didn't even speak to each other. We got up and walked out. Because with him, you have to sign everything over to him. He gave you an allowance of 400 pounds a week. On the way out, we met the other guy. His name was Jerry Dorsey. He went in. We waited outside with no contract, nothing. He came out and he said, I took the deal. They're changing my name to Engelbert Humperdinck. And they did. And he's still making music. Yes. And we came back. We met a guy there named Tony Hiller. And while we were there, obviously, we had nothing to do. You're walking around Soho, which is a great place to hang out. It's like the village in New York. 
we hear this noise, we hear Happy Jack and my generation coming out of this little club called the Marquee Club, which is probably the size of two bathrooms here. <laughs> a little tiny club held like 110 people. And so there's no guards or nothing. It's two in the afternoon. We go in there and it's the who. They're on stage. The stage is only about six inches high. It's just a little stage you step up. But there's the full who. They're playing Happy Jack and My Generation over and over. They're taping it for German television. But then there was no video. They're taping it with real sound to tape recorder. Remember those Agva tape recorders and real film. But they were playing so loud, the film, <laughs> the film was vibrating in the camera and getting blurry. So they kept saying to them, turn down. Of course, when you tell a loud band to turn down, they crank up yeah, past 11, they get pliers, they turn up to 12 or whatever. So they took a break. We sat down and we said, look, at you guys used to be called the detours and the high numbers. We're the guess who? We were given this name. We had the hit was shaken all over. Like last year, three years ago, four years ago, you have to stop using the name. And Pete Townsend and John Entrus were the spokesmen. They said, there's the birds and the yard birds. So I guess it could be the who and the guess who. Why don't you guys just bugger off? Which was a saying that everybody said in Monty Python had slightly different meaning then in England than it did here. But that became an ongoing joke. Because from that point on, we came back, got a television show in Winnipeg, paid off all of our debt. We came back 40000 in the hole. Paid off our debt, wrote these eyes, wrote all the other hit songs. Boom, we're on the road touring. And the Who are there touring back and forth. So every time we would go to LaGuardia or we're flying to England to do Top of the Pops and the Who have flown over there at LaGuardia and they're on their way to LA to do a tour, I would say, what room is Pete Townsend in or John Entwistle? And they would tell me the room. So I would dial the room. And I'd say, is this John Entwistle? Yes. This is Randy Backer, the guess who bugger off and it hang up. <laughs> so they did that to us and we did that to them for years and years. It was an ongoing joke. Then the great thing was in 1995, we were rehearsing in Vancouver. I'm part of Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. The bass player is John Entwistle. The Hard Rock Cafe opens in downtown Gastown. And they say, you want to come and play the opening? I say, yeah, get me a drummer. I'm going to do Shaken with John Entwistle. Because the Who had cut it live at Leeds and did a really good job with the song. So I went there and played it with John Entwistle. It was very cool. And the whole tour with him and the Ringo Star All-Star Band was quite an event in my life. It was amazing. I think everybody has a dream of being remembered for something they've done, capturing that moment, the lightning in a bottle. So tell me what ran through your mind when you were contacted by the producers of The Simpsons to make an appearance on the show playing Taking Care of Business. A fax came out of my fax machine. This is before the internet. The fax is coming out, Matt Groening office, permission to use, Taking Care of Business, and you ain't seen nothing yet on The Simpsons. So, wow, wow, okay. I phoned the phone number. Yeah, you can have permission. Why are you using it? When you and Fred are here doing your voiceover, what voiceover? <laughs> Did you get the message we want you to appear on The Simpsons? When Matt Grading was going to Evergreen College outside of Seattle, BTO was exploding. You guys are big. You're his college band. He wants you on the show. Wow. So <laughs> I flew down there. They flew Fred separately and flew me separately because they said, you have to do this all alone because if you're in the room with the voice of Marge and Homer, and you're going to be awestruck. Okay, you're going to be looking at these people. We want you to do a performance. So when I'm there and they say, okay, Randy, say, this is like Spinal Tap. Hello, Springfield. So I go, hello, Springfield. Okay, that's good for one person. How about 20 people? Hello, Springfield. Okay, how about 200? Hello, Springfield. How about 2,000? Hello, how about 20,000? Hello, Springfield. And you do that. They go, that's the take. I just saw it again. Homer talking to his little kid. The 70s were cool. We had all initials. 
We had ZZ Top. We had ZZ. We had CSNN. We had CTA, Chicago Transit. We had BTO. We had REO Speedwagon. We had ELO. We had initials. We were really hip. We were cool. We had this language. DCP taking care of business. Yasni, you ain't seen nothing yet. And so it was really a thrill to be on The Simpsons. You've recorded more than 50 albums, Randy. Do you have a favorite, whether it be because of the process or the finished product or the actual tunes that were written for it? Well, my favorite one is the one I'm working on now. I did an album with my son, Tal, the first father-son album. We'll be called Bachman and Bachman. What was amazing is I had two people from Toronto fly out here saying, we think you can have another entity if you do this thing with your son. Nobody's done a father-son thing. Maybe someone played on a track on an album to get and create an album, 50-50 equal. You write those songs, you write them alone or you write them together. You perform and sing them together. You share solos. You do the whole thing together. It'll be like the Judds, right? The kind of country mother-daughter thing. Okay, we'll give it a go. And your album cannot sound like old Guess Who, old BTO, or Tal Bachman's <laughs> big hit, She's So High. Get a new sound. So these two guys are here from Toronto saying, okay, here's your new sound. Okay, play it. They play me a song. It's called Dun Robin's Gone. It's me. It's from my first Brave Belt album with me and Chad Allen. I'm going, are you guys joking? They're going, you should sound like this. It's like Gordon Lightfoot with three-part harmony and acoustic guitar. And I said, do you realize that's me? I produced it. I wrote half of it. I'm singing it with Chad. I'm playing the guitar. I'm playing the bass. I'm playing everything. Oh, really? That's what you should sound like. I said, piece of cake. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to when I left the Guess Who and did a Brave Belt, the country rock album, like Coffee Stills, Nash, Buffalo, Springfield, Poco, all those bands I loved, the early Eagles. And so Tal and I did an album. So I'm very proud of that. And we're, it's very tough to hold it back. We want to release it, but we got to wait till the documentary's done. It could be played throughout the documentary. Sounds like a great project. The music itself, what genre do you think you can... You would call it Americana. I would say we managed to do a blend of early Eagles, ELO, who we love, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Pogues, the Pogues when they're up rock and that kind of thing, and Buffalo Springfield. It was just a joy to do because we always wanted to do that and never had the open door to do it because people would say, oh, your new album sounds like Buffalo Springfield, blah, blah, blah. This way, we've been given a carte blanche, create something new. Okay, nobody's heard of Buffalo Springfield. A lot of kids have never even heard of them. They've never heard of the Traveling Wilburys. That's what it sounds like. Some of the songs sound like Traveling Wilbury song. It's just a bunch of guys with acoustic guitars having fun, played live in the studio. And we went to Woodenville, Washington, to a great studio there. We had a producer who had done the Lumineers' big hit, which was called Ho Hey. He produced the album because we needed a little bit more direction. We were like bumping head, me and Talion, creating stuff. We need a guy to say, yes, this, no, that, yes, this, back and forth. And we did a really great album. You've named so many great bands there. I don't even know where to start, but let's start with when Randy is just kicking back for 10 minutes, because that's probably all the time you take to kick back. What kind of music do you listen to? Who do you listen to? I would say weekly, weekly. We sit there in awe, me and Tal and Coco, who he's married to now, and anybody else who's here, and watch ELO, Jeff Lynn's ELO at Wembley Stadium. Before the shutdown, I think maybe three years ago, in Vancouver, within 10 days, was a special event. And I blew my brains out. I spent $30,000 on tickets. I took my two daughters and all their kids and me and Tal and everybody. We took all these kids. And we went to see McCartney, ELO, Teflin's ELO, Queen, wow. and Dido, all in the same 10 days. Then we hear about ELO live at Wembley. We put it on. It is the most amazing concert. The concert we saw, Jeff Lynn won hands down. This guy alone performs 
38 or 40 songs. All of them are different, but all of them have that, that Jeff Lynne stamp of harmonies and drums, the chord progressions. There, he does a couple of songs with the Wilburys. It's just, he's just an amazing guy, amazing musician. So that, that's what we listen to all the time. So you've been the host of Vinyl Tap for almost 20 years. As a matter of fact, you've been the host of Vinyl Tap so long, vinyl is making a comeback. And <laughs> <laughs> you always seem to have a nugget every week. When you consider I started touring when I was about 18 or 19, first in Winnipeg, when the shows would come to Winnipeg, we were the top band. So we would open for Peter and Gordon, Manfred Mann, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Supreme, Jefferson Airplane, whoever the big band was, the local guys would open. So we played with them all. Then we go on tour to the Seattle Pop Festival and meet Led Zeppelin and The Who and Sly and the Family Stone and The Birds and Chuck Berry and Bo Dilley. So I know everybody, but nobody knows my relationships I have when I met this person, Brian Wilson or Ringo Starr, whatever. So when I play my music, I tell my own story that I have with these people and nobody has heard that story. So I think that's what makes the show interesting. And also being on the CBC, there's no commercials. So I have a full nice chunk of maybe 57 minutes every hour. Could be a stop for the news at the top of the hour. And nobody tells me what to play. So when I say our theme this week is girls' names, I go to Diana. Polanka. Polanka. I go to Rihanna. Do you know what I mean? I go to something else like that. And I could play five decades of rock and roll. I play Little Queenie or I play Nadine, a Chuck Berry song, or Elvis doing a girl's song. So it has been a lot of fun doing that. And I'm struggling now because the CBC was over. They wanted to revamp everything. And I'm on the Classic Rock Network across Canada. But I'm looking to get a sponsor because CBC was funded by taxes and the government. And I was funded by that. Now I'm funded by nobody. So I've been doing this show for nothing for the last year. Just because I love doing it. When Today in BC continues, Randy Bachman talks about his guitar collection, a classic rock cruise, and songwriting. Search, browse, buy. Black Press Media brings you today's drive. Find your new vehicle on our exclusive platform and get driving. At todaysdrive.com, you'll have access to inventory across BC, where you can easily find a vehicle that fits your needs and gets you where you need to go in comfort. With new and used vehicles from the dealership around the corner and dealers across BC, the best venue to find your next vehicle is todaysdrive.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Randy... Songwriting is a very personal thing for a musician, very expressive. Every musician I talk to seems to have a different route to the finished tune. What would you consider to be your best songwriting effort and why? Probably She's Come Undone. I wrote that alone. When I was creating it, I had all these jazz chords. And Burton comes in, I couldn't find anything to sing over these chords. They were strange. They weren't a normal, woke up this morning, my roof was leaking blues, rock and roll based stuff. It were these jazzy chords. That chord progression stayed in my mind. One day I was in Vancouver. FM radio had just started. It was early 68, listening to CKLG FM, where they said, we're now in stereo on FM. It's going to be coming out of both doors in your car, not just under the dash, which was mono. Bam, both doors. And we're playing. We can play whatever we want. There's no format. They're playing whole sides of an album, all blues album, John Lee Hooker, blah, blah, blah. And then here's a band from Australia. They play the whole album. And here's a new Bob Dylan album. And they play the Bob Dylan album. And halfway through a song called 
ballad in plain D, he says the words, she came undone. And I go, wow, that sentence says so many things. All I got to do is elaborate on those things. Why did she come undone? She didn't know where she was going. Too many churches, too many roads, too many choices, too many this, too many boyfriends, too many parental opinions and all this kind of stuff. So I wrote the song. Like Bob Dylan, I had maybe 12 verses. I went to next door, knocked on Burton's room. This is Saturday morning in Vancouver. I knocked on the door and said, listen to this song. I got something for these jazz chords. And I played and he goes, wow, congratulations. You've written a great song on your own. You own that song. Let's throw away 10 verses and let's just pick two or three really good and move the verses around, the lines around, so we tell a really concise story. And out of that came, she's come undone. And I said, this is emulating our Rod Argent and the zombies, tell her no, and things like that. So rather than doing a piano solo, which he was going to do, I said, let's do something weird. He said, what do you mean? I said, let's do something weird. He said, how about a flute? I said, okay. We went into Yamaha in Winnipeg on Portage Avenue and said, can we try a flute? The guy said, can you play a flute? Burton said, at St. John's High in the high school marching band, I played a C melody sax. And the guy said, oh, the fingering's the same. Burton took the flute, figured out a solo. We went to Chicago, recorded that song. That's the solo you hear. That's the first thing he ever played on the flute. It's amazing. I just had Guitar Player Magazine call me and interview me that it was voted by their viewers of Guitar Player Magazine as one of the greatest rock songs of all time. And I was like, what? Yes, because it came out in the middle of pop music. The Beatles, this came out in like the mid, the late 60s. Everything was psychedelic or pop music. And out came this cool, jazzy song and everybody wanted to hear it more. It was ear candy. Like the first time you ever heard Girl From Ipanema on the radio with Astrid Gilberto and Stan Guest. Wow, I can't believe this cool thing is on rock radio. If you and the listeners want to hear a great version, Google Kurt Elling, K-U-R-T, E-L-I-N-G. He's a jazz pool vocalist. He lives in Chicago, and he's done an incredible version of She's Come Undone. And is he a pianist or a horn player? He just stands up and sings, but he's got a great piano player. He's got a great band, piano, bass, drums, and a saxophone. And when I heard that song, it just blew me away. It's a, got a weird time signature, which mine doesn't. But these jazz guys got to do everything in 11-4 time or 11-8 <laughs> time or whatever. He asked me to play with him at the Toronto Jazz Festival. So I go on stage and I say, I can't even play to my own song. Can you give me a little vamp in the middle where you're playing 4-4 four, four time and repeating two chords over and over? I'll solo from that, then you can go into your piano thing. He said, okay. So that's how he got through that. Recently, we lost one of the greats in Canada, Ian Tyson, whose Four Strong Winds was voted one of Canada's best songs of all time. And you yeah. sang many times with Ian Tyson. Yeah, he was a great guy. He was a real cowboy. At the end of a tour, hey, Ian, what are you doing? I'm going back to the ranch. I got to get on a horse. I got to rope some cattle. You know, he was like, this guy was starring in Yellowstone before Kevin Costner. You know what I mean? A few years ago, I spotted your name associated with a Rock Legends Cruise. And there was some big names from the 60s and 70s and classic rock on the poster. My favorite I happened to spot, who was on the cruise with you, in addition to you, was Grand Funk Railroad. I had the original yeah. Silver Penny album. I don't know if you remember it. It looked like a giant Silver Penny, tinfoil-covered cardboard. Is it safe yeah. to assume that you had a ton of fun on that ship and renewed a lot of acquaintances with musicians you met along the way? Yeah, I didn't want to do it at first because you'd find on this boat with however many 3,000, 4,000 fans or whatever. And when you get used to that, it's cool because it's going to a town, the same family has you over for dinner every time you're there. It's 24 hours when you're on the cruise. The restaurants never close. It's just rocking all the time. And so on that cruise was uh, Peter Frampton, 
very good dear old friend of mine. We're leaving to do another one this February, and on it is Deep Purple, Roger Daltrey, who I could phone and say bugger off, <laughs> and 38 Special, Marshall Tucker, Walter Trout, a buddy of mine, a great blues guitar player. When we did that rock cruise that you mentioned, on our way home when we landed, they let us off the boat and they shut the boat down. And we didn't know what was going on. Okay, all you musicians leave and go over there. You're gone. The boat's closed. We know people that were stuck there three and a half weeks in the boat because of COVID, the shutdown. We go to the airport in Fort Lauderdale. We get on the plane. This is the last flight out to Toronto. We get to Toronto. This is the last flight to Vancouver. We fly to Vancouver. We get home here in Victoria and we stay home for two and a half years. Now we're going back to do the Rock Legends cruise again. And so this one is a really good one. In the music business, timing is everything, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> timing is everything in everything, okay? <laughs> yeah. You're one of two Canadians who have been inducted into Canada's Walk of Fame twice, two times, the other being Burton Cummings. How does that make you feel? Pretty special. We're never going to see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, so the Junos is it. I wanted to talk a little bit about your guitar collection. How many guitars do you suppose you've collected over the years? And how many do you suppose you've donated to museums and the like? And which ones will you never part with? Over the years, probably over a thousand. When my Gretsch was stolen, I went on a bender. My midlife crisis, trying to find this guitar. The whole world knew about it. It was printed Rolling Stone on random notes. Everybody knew. I would do a gig, there'd be a knock at my door. There's a guy that's playing an arena somewhere, Louisville, Kentucky or something. A guy brought a Gretsch. I look at it, it's not mine. Yeah, but you want it, it's 100 bucks. Okay. I ended up buying them. This goes on for years and years. As my kids grow up, graduate high school, leave home and go to college. Oh, wow, another bedroom. Let's put hooks on the wall, hang all the guitars. I've got no point in having guitars in cases. You got to have them on the wall. You got to go and go, wow, like a music store, blam. Because each guitar has a story behind it and a history. So I had all that done. Then a guy named Jay Scott was doing the Gretsch guitar book and heard about my collection and asked me for photos. So I sent him photos of my basement, which were then printed in the Gretsch guitar book, which is a history of Gretsch guitars. Then I got a call from Fred Gretsch himself, who said, do you really have all these guitars? Yes, I do. <laughs> Where are they? Are they in my house? At the time, I lived in White Rock, BC. Can I come and bring Duke Kramer, who's my production manager, with me? And Pete from Pete's Rare Guitars, and can we come and see your collection? We have something to ask you. Sure, come on over. So they fly into Vancouver. They come to White Rock. They are absolutely blown away because they've got a 12-foot ceiling with three guitars, three guitars, three guitars, all in trees. And then along the bottom on stands are more guitars. And they're pretty impressed. And he says to me, I've only been able to market Gretsch drums for the past 30 years. I lost the name Gretsch Guitars through a divorce and through corporate taking over and buying names and trademarks and stuff. I now have it back. I go, great, congratulations. He said, but the factory burnt down. We don't have any templates to make the guitars. Can we borrow your guitars five or six at a time? And we'll calibrate them and we'll measure them. And we'll copy, we'll photograph, and we'll make the new Gretsch line. And I said, sure, okay. So he took the guitars five or six at a time over years. So every Gretsch you see now that's a brand new Gretsch from 1990 on is a copy of one that I had in my collection that they copied because they had nothing else. And I think about five years later, he came to me and he said, there's a Gibson Museum, a Rickenbacker Museum, a Fender Museum, a Martin Museum. You own my museum. I want to buy all your guitars. I said, great. I want to buy a flat in Covent Garden. I wanted to live there since I went there in 67 with the Guess Who. And every time I went, it was too expensive. This would be a chunk of cash. I could get my Covent Garden flat, right? 
So I sold him the collection. It's now in Savannah, Georgia. They're going to film it right now for the end of the documentary. And it was very cathartic to collect. I tripled my investment because what Fred paid me and what I initially had buying them at 100 or 150 or 1200 bucks each or whatever. It was a great investment. And it was an investment that I used. They languished in my basement with nothing going on until the Traveling Wilburys came out. And they had to do a photo shoot for Time, Newsweek, and Rolling Stone. They go to Norman's Rare Guitars in LA. They pick out a country gentleman, an orange 6120, a silver jet, and all the Wilburys are in their videos and on the cover of Time and Newsweek and Rolling Stone with Christ Guitars. Boom. Anything that I paid 1000 for is now 10000 Anything I paid 1500 for is now $15,000. Boom. It exploded. So that was a good investment for me. I know you know this fellow pretty well. Probably you're in some kind of a guitar collecting competition with him. Steve Miller? I know him quite well, but I haven't seen him in 30 years. He's way behind you. He's only got about 450. That's pretty good. I'm down to that now. I have several hundred in the National Music Library in Calgary, and they're setting them up. They're polishing them right now. I'm going there next week. I'm going to do a dissertation on each guitar because it's every guitar tells a story. And so I'll be there telling the story how I got each guitar, who gave it to me, why did Chet Atkins sign it, why did Les Paul sign it, why did Brian Setzer sign it, everybody else. It's going to be shown next April, May, June, July at the Museum in Calgary. And people are going to pay money to go in and see my insane collection. And they just finished Getty Lee's bass collection there, a Buffy St. Marie's art, Alec Lifeson's guitar collection. And now they're having mine starting, like I said, in April as the great big collection. But they've got all my guitars, my first guitar, my harmony, then my silver tone, then my orange Gretsch, then my 59 Les Paul, that's the American woman sound, then my two white strats that I played in BTO. They're going to have them all there and playing the music that I created on those guitars. When I go there next week, I'm going to be showing instruction with the guitar there. You pick up the guitar and I'll show you how to play it to take care of business or you ain't seen nothing yet or she's come undone. It's in process, but it's going to be an amazing, wonderful thing and a great celebration for me of an insane over-the-top collector. It sounds it. As you say, every guitar tells a story. Every song tells a story, which is your very successful tour. Great evening of music and storytelling, letting people know how songs came to be. I think my favorite story is taking care of business. It might be the longest story, and it goes from 1967, I think, to 73. Like, I wrote it as White Collar Worker. Nobody liked it. It just sat next to my heart. A few of my favorite things. And then I found the title taking care of business and replaced white collar worker with that. We did the song immediately on stage crowd went nuts over recorded it and it became what it is today. So that's, that was a really cool thing that happened. And I think every song has a different meaning to every fan. And somebody said to me the other day, I was just in LA for a week and doing all kinds of interviews. And they said, if you ask anyone and I will ask your readers or ask you, what were you doing 12 years ago today? What were you doing eight years ago today? You have no idea. It's like, duh, it's a duh moment. If I said to you, what were you doing the first time you heard Taking Care of Business? What were you doing the first time you heard Celine Dion singing her theme from Titanic? Oh, you're in the backseat with your new wife, your girlfriend, you're making out. The music takes you back and helps you remember. So every single song that I play has a special ka-ching in someone's heart and soul and mind. So it varies with every song. You've been on the road a long time, in the music business a long time. I thought perhaps if I give you a few names, you can give us a quick thought or two on some of these musicians you know, some of your friends. Bill Henderson of Chilliwack. Uh, Bill Henderson is an amazing guy. I was aware of him in probably 1967, 68, when we got back from England. 
and we got a television show that pulled us out of the hole. That was a weekly show called Let's Go and Music Hop. It changed its name in two years. And the band from Vancouver was The Collectors. Then they were called Chilliwack. And the one common factor is like Jeff Lynn with ELO is Bill Henderson. He wrote all the songs, wrote great songs, great voice, plays great guitar, did most of the production. A couple of years ago, I inducted Chilliwack into the Canadian Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Calgary at the National Music Center. And it was really cool. He's one of Canada's great, I think, unheralded guitar players. When you we hear a Chilliwack song, they're just amazing hooks. They're not bubblegum. They're really great rock and roll. They're all different styles. Great guitar playing. His voice is kind of like Neil Young, but quite a bit better than Neil Young. You know, high tenor voice. I hung out with him many times on Salt Spring quite a bit. And he's just a great guy. I walked into a pub on Salt Spring one time, and you and Bill Henderson were playing at Moby's with Valdi. Well, he was another guy that lived in Winnipeg, and out came this legend of this guy who lives in the bushes, like Grizzly Adams, right? Guy with a beard and a toque and lumberjack boots, and he had a great song, Play Me a Rock and Roll Song, which is a great song. It was on A&M Records, and he lived in this mysterious place called Salt Spring Island, and I wanted to go there. Then I heard Bill Henderson got a place and moved to Salt Spring Island, and I wanted to go there. And you want to go to this place. It's like Laurel Canyon. Everybody's there. You want to go there. And that's kind of what happened there. Neil Young. Well, I've known Neil since I was about 16. He was maybe 14. And he had just moved to Winnipeg with his mother. He and I bought the same Orange Gresh guitar, the Winnipeg piano. He bought one with the Armin with Filtertron pickups. I bought the one with the Armin pickups. When mine was stolen and then recovered, the email I got was from him saying, wow. Amazing that you got your guitar back. I've still got mine. He's playing his on American Bandstand with Springfield and for what it's worth, his Orange Gretsch, and he still has his. And he's been a very good friend of mine that does things with me and for me without me having to ask. Like people would say, how do you get Neil Young to play in your record? How do you get him to play in Prairie Town? I said, you don't ask him. Oh, I said, he offered. And then I say, that I'm not going to say, what? <laughs> so he said, I want to play and sing on this song, Prairie Town. I said, there's two versions. He said, great, I'll do both. I'll do the fast and the slow. So I go down there to a Broken Arrow Ranch. We record the slow and fast version. I stay over at his house. We're having breakfast the next morning. <laughs> he says to me over breakfast, and I want to be in the video. <laughs> I'm about to say, what video? I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're arranging the video right now. Can you come to Winnipeg? Well, I don't know. I said, but it wouldn't it be great if we're in the field in Winnipeg. And after the harvest, they burn the field, right? They burn all the roots so they wouldn't compost with the snow and they refertilize the soil for the next year when everything grows again. He said, great, how can you pull that off? I said, I'll be watching the weather. When there's a storm coming, you fly in, I'll have a crew. He said, are you insane? That didn't work out. He finally said, look, just come to the ranch. We'll shoot it here. Uh, we did that. It was a fantastic video. I'm using part of it now because I re-recorded Prairie Town with him and Margot Timmons and Tal singing for the new Backman album. Your thoughts on Ringo Starr? One of the world's coolest drummers one of the world's luckiest drummers, and a real true musician who doesn't need to do anything. But he manages to get a band together every couple of years and handpick guys to each do their own songs and goes out on the road and tours. So it was really fun to play with him. I was given, I think, four or five songs to play. John Whistle did a couple. Mark Farner did three or four Grand Funk songs. Billy Preston did his couple of songs. Ringo does all of his songs. And Felix from The Rascal did all the Rascal songs. It was just a thrill to play classic rock songs with the guy who wrote it and sang it on the record. That was like, I really dug that. It was great. 
Not a musician, but a guy who has been promoting musicians and a friend to musicians for many years. I'm sure you've run across Terry David Mulligan. Yeah, our trip to England, we were accompanied by Terry David Mulligan. Do you know that? He was a DJ there at CKCK in Regina. He was famous because to get listeners, because he was just started at the station, he sat on a flagpole for three days and broadcasted from the top of this flagpole in downtown Regina. And we'd all go there and see him. So every four hours, they would haul up a little thing that he would pee in and a sandwich. <laughs> and he was like in a tent and he stayed on there for three days broadcasting. And we were going to England. He said, I want to come with you. So he came with us to England. He's been a really cool, really neat friend of mine for many years. So you mentioned you were part of this all-star band. Imagine, if you will, Randy's putting his own all-star band together after the documentary, let's call it Randy's Wrecking Crew. Everybody's available that answers the phone. Who are you calling? Are they alive? Okay. Live or dead? John Bonham drums. Good choice. The okay. best choice. Yeah. The guy from ABBA on bass. I don't know his name, but the bass playing on ABBA's records on Dancing Queen and SOS is the most incredible bass of all time because it's pop. Whereas James Jamerson did a similar thing for all the R&B songs out of Motown. This guy was playing pop music, the most incredible bass player. And then the guitar would be like Neil Young for Wildness and because he's like a wild man. And maybe a guy like Eddie Van Halen who became a really good friend of mine. We were on tour for 11 months with Van Halen in the 5150 tour. And Eddie was just really a great, wonderful guy and a great guitar player. So, Randy, tell us about the show that you do with your son, Tell Backman, called Trainwrecks. Go to YouTube, Trainwrecks, every Friday at 6 o'clock, live on YouTube. We tried to stump each other playing weird songs we had never played before. And after we did one, I said, I never want to do it again. It's a train wreck. And Coco said, let's call it the train wreck and keep doing it. And all the email came in and said, we love seeing you guys making mistakes and playing a song in the wrong key or wrong chord because everything we are on the radio is perfect. And we know you've sung it 20 times. You played your solo 50 times. You picked the best of, and that's what's on the radio. It's great to see you sitting around playing in the wrong key, the wrong chord, and the way you stumble around. How do you rehearse this? I said, we don't rehearse it. He shows up with five songs. I show up with five. We plunge right into it. We might type out the lyrics, but I've never played these. I don't know what chords go where. It's like Wayne's World with, with blindfolds on. I'd like to thank Randy Bachman for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. You can find out more about the new Bachman album, randybachman.com and bachmanbachman.com. If you have suggestions or comments for us, send us a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts.